Good morning, everybody. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are glad that you're here. We're going to take a few minutes to read and reflect a little bit out of the scriptures. And so uh, if you have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open it. Uh, We're going to be near the end of the New Testament in a book called Ephesians. Uh, If you're like me and sometimes you can't turn to those sections very quickly, just go to the table of contents on the beginning of your Bible, find Ephesians, and you'll be able to get over there and join us. And in just a moment, we'll read from Ephesians chapter 5. As we uh, continue to talk about the things that God provides for us as His followers, we're going to be talking today about relationships and uh, the kind of biblical prescriptions that we have for relationships. Uh, We'll be talking about marriage. We'll be talking about parenting and being uh, children to parents. We'll be talking about what's going on in your workplace. And just approaching that subject, I know, can become uh, a little bit challenging, uh, a little bit uh, emotional sometimes for us because we have some disappointments. Some of us have some hurts in those arenas. And uh, I just want to say on the outset, I think God wants to encourage you. I think He wants to help you. I think He wants to bless you. And so I encourage you to listen and engage your heart with that kind of anticipation. While you're looking up that passage, I want to mention one other thing to you, kind of as a side note. Some of you are familiar with the entertainers, Penn and Teller. They kind of do magic stuff and comedy stuff, and they've been on a bunch of television programs, and uh, I think they've been uh, in Vegas for years. Um, the reason I bring them up because it's not I'm endorsing their uh, entertainment at all. I've never seen it, don't know anything about it. But I came across some statements that Penn Gillette, the guy on the left, the bigger guy, made not too long ago. Penn and Teller both are rather outspoken atheists. And not too long ago, after one of their performances, a guy came up to Penn and uh, complimented him on the program and then gave him a Bible and said something to the effect, I pray for you, and I pray that Jesus would become a part of your life. And Penn later recorded a a response to that guy that uh, you can see on YouTube. Please don't pick up your phone and look at that right now. But anyway, uh, I know some of you just began to grab for it. But anyway... uh, In that interview, or in that uh, commentary, that response, Penn said this. He goes, a lot of my atheist friends would have been totally turned off by that guy's attempt to proselytize me. And he said, I actually am glad he did. Because if that guy really believes what he says he believes, that there's a heaven, there's a hell, Jesus is the way to heaven. Those that don't go with Jesus miss heaven. If he really believes that, then how much would he have to hate me to never tell me that? And that statement just reverberates within me. Because as you know, in about three weeks, we will be commemorating the sacrifice of our Savior in our Good Friday service, and we'll be celebrating the resurrection of our Lord on Easter Sunday. And along with Christmas, it's like one of the great 
uh, days in the Christian calendar. And uh, people often don't think about God very much across the year, but they tend to around Christmas and Easter. And you have some friends. You have some workmates. You have some neighbors that just might come on your arm to attend one of those services and maybe have a special touch from God on that day. And I just echo the question that Penn, the atheist, said. How much would you have to hate somebody to not tell them about Christ, to not invite them to a great occasion to experience Christ? The other side of that is, of course, you love them. And I just want to encourage you to follow your heart. And as God stirs your love for these people that he's got around your life, uh, extend that invitation. We're going to have a great day uh, on that weekend as we gather. So as I said, we're going to be talking about a bunch of relational stuff here in the next few minutes. I want to pray for you as we get into that. So let's bow together. Lord, you ordained this meeting, this gathering. It was your plan that we would open up the scriptures to this text and have this discussion today. And so we uh, approach it with a sense of awe. What might you be up to? With a sense of curiosity, what might the outcomes be? With a sense of fear, what potential disappointments await me? And with some hope, could it be that you would take me and my relationships to a better day? So, Lord, in these ways, we approach you in worship. Amen. Amen. How many of you saw not too long ago the movie featuring uh, the the life story of Johnny Cash, Walk the Line? Did you see that? Yeah, several of you. Um, and I realize that not many country music fans are in the room, and and if you were, you probably didn't care that much about Johnny Cash. But let me just uh, refer to that movie for a moment because there was a very intriguing scene that took place there, as some of you may recall. Uh, Johnny Cash kind of grew up in a rather impoverished uh, situation and had a lot of family tumult and challenges. And uh, He was kind of trying to break out of all that by becoming a star, an entertainer. And so, uh, like some others in his day, he made his way to Memphis, Tennessee and to a little studio called Sun Records, same place where Elvis Presley was discovered. And Sam Phillips at the time was the head of that studio and the head of discovering talent there. And he wouldn't give Johnny Cash the time of day. You recall this scene in the movie? And so on one occasion, Johnny Cash, who could not get an audition with Sam Phillips, just showed up at the crack of dawn at Sun Records, sat on the step with his guitar, and just waited for the man to show up for work. And when Phillips showed up, he began pleading and begging, would he grant him a few minutes of an audition? So Sam Phillips finally relented and said, okay, I'll hear you. Come on in. So he comes in, he gets his guitar, and he begins to play. And he sings a song that's a gospel. And the words go something like this. There are some people who say we cannot tell whether we are saved or whether all is well. They say we can only hope and trust that it's so. 
But I was there when it happened. And I guess I ought to know. Yes, I know when Jesus saved me, the very moment he forgave me. He took away my heavy burdens. Lord, he gave me peace within. And on it goes. As you may recall in the film, as he's singing this thing, Sam Phillips just stop, 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 stop. Okay? And Johnny Cash stops singing and playing. He's like, what's wrong? And he goes, it's awful. It's terrible. Johnny Cash says, what? Are you talking about how I play or how I sing? Sam Phillips says, yes. I don't like the way you play or sing. And he goes, well, what's wrong with my singing? And he said, I don't believe you. You mean to tell me that if you went out in the street today, got hit by a truck, and you were lying in the gutter, and you were just about to die, and you only had one song that you could ever sing, you'd sing that song? You really think Jesus has saved you? You really think he's taken your troubles away? I don't believe you for a minute. And, of course, he went on to have another crack at it, got the recording deal, blah, 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 all right? But I wanted us to pause at that point in the story. Because we have been for several weeks in the book of Ephesians. Do you believe this stuff? I mean, did God really clothe himself with flesh? Change his address, move out of heaven and move into this world? Live a sinless life? Die a suffering, atoning death for you, for me? Do you really believe that forgiveness is yours to experience and to realize that you are an adopted son or daughter of God? Do you really believe that He has taken all of your disobedience, all of your rebellion, all of your stiff-neckedness, as the Bible would refer to it, and reconciled you to Himself? Do you really believe that He seeks to fill your life every day with His power, His grace, His wisdom, So that you can do this life like no other. Do you really believe that? I mean, if you were to go out here today and get hit by a truck and you're lying in the gutter and you only had one opportunity to articulate one thing, would that be what you would articulate? Because it so seizes who you are and who you're becoming. Now, friends, that has everything to do with what we're about to read. Because what we are about to read is one of the most misunderstood and most abused texts in the Bible. And what we are about to read will be based in, couched in, the belief, I have a life. In Jesus Christ. And I want the world to know it. It's had that kind of impact upon me. It has so transformed me. I couldn't be more 
thrilled and grateful that I get this life. So it's in that context that we're reading Ephesians chapter 5. Now I have to kind of catch you up to where we're going to be jumping in right at verse 22. Because uh, as we began chapter 5 in verse 1, Paul is exhorting us, if this is who you are, if you really have Christ, if you really are a new creation in the Lord, if you have become a son or a daughter, if you have His life now coursing through your soul, then by all means, live in such a way that that's demonstrated. Imitate Him, he said in chapter 5, verse 1. This is what we talked about last week. And when you begin to imitate Christ, you become your most authentic self. And he said, imitate Him this way. Practice forgiveness. Forgive like Jesus forgave. Practice love. Love others the way Jesus loved. He said, practice thanksgiving. Take stock of all that He has done for you. Allow contentment to reign and to rule in your heart. Practice thanksgiving. And then he said, practice discernment. What would Jesus do? Ask yourself how God sees this, how God would respond to this, what God would do about that circumstance or that situation. Practice discernment. And then he said, practice submission. Now, we didn't get to that. But as we get into verse 22 today, it's preceded by verse 21, where he says, now, in light of all that Jesus is doing inside of you and in light of the new life He's blessing you with, practice submitting one to another, deferring to one another. And if you're going, man, that's a tall order. How can anybody do that? He says, well, then be sure that you're filled with His Holy Spirit. Keep on being filled by His Spirit which will give you the power, which will give you the wherewithal to live the kind of life that I'm encouraging you to imitate from Christ. So today when we get into the new text, we're not just going to imitate, we're going to relate. And we're all about relationships in this text. So begin reading with me in chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects 
her husband. Keep your Bible open because we're going to keep making reference to uh, what the text says. Now, Paul says the whole marriage thing, the husband, the wife thing, it's a great mystery. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Only he means that in the most positive sense. It is a great mystery. And here's the mystery. We're just going to unfold it for you right off the front. God's idea behind marriage is that the world would be able to see how great and glorious He is. That's the idea behind marriage. You thought it was about you. We thought it was about us. We thought it was all about husbands and wives and how uh, we mutually make one another so happy for the rest of our lives. And the Bible says, no, sorry, it's not about you. It's not about your happiness. It's about His glory. His greatness being displayed in you and your relationship. And I uh, get to play a part. You get to play a part in this tremendous drama called marriage. And here's the way that it plays itself out. He says, wives, you get to play the part of submission. You go, I don't like that part. Can I audition for a different part? Is there some step I can sit on at the crack of dawn and talk myself into auditioning for another part? Well, remember the context. Verse 21, the way we imitate Christ is we practice submission to one another. Submission is just the way of life for followers of Jesus. Okay, It's not a wife-only thing, but it is a wife-emphasized thing. Hmm, wonder why. Maybe there's a scenario around that in which Paul needed to emphasize it. And he says, this isn't just a kind of docile getting along, but this is a submission unto your husband as unto the Lord. No, that doesn't mean that he gets to be God over your life. But that means by the way you submit to him, it's as if you are submitting to the Lord. And it becomes a way of drawing attention from a watching world to the Lord. Now, guys, yours is a little more expounded upon. As the text goes on to say that you're to love. And you're to love sacrificially like Christ who gave himself for the church. How sacrificial is that? How selfless is that? And you're to love in a a way that sanctifies. That is to say, the way you love your wife, the way you live with your wife, so facilitates, so encourages her advancement in the Lord, her advancement in Christ, that she's able to soar in her faith, not reach points of faith in spite of us. And then he says that we are to savor. We are to love our wife in such a way that we fully enjoy. Like you enjoy the capacities that your body has to perform. 
And then he says, we are to be set apart. We are to love our wives in such a way she's first and best in our lives. We separate from mom and dad and every other family system and structure. It's not like we say goodbye to them and and cut ourselves off from them, but we separate ourselves from them so that our wife becomes first and best in our heart and our affections after the Lord. And then he wraps all that up in the very last verse. In case you didn't get it, he says, the men are to love and the women are to respect. So here's what's been discovered by research. Large sample of men were questioned in this way. If you had to do without one or the other of these two factors in your life, which one would you choose to do without? If you had to do without love and affection, or you had to do without honor and respect, which one would you choose to do without? Over 74% of men said, I'll do without love and affection. See, the point is, we all need love. We all need this kind of respect and reverence that can come our way from uh, significant others in our lives. But as it tends to work out, guys tend to need and want respect more than love. In fact, they feel loved when they're respected. Women, on the other hand, tend to want and desire love more than respect. And will actually feel some sense of being cared about and cherished and respected if they're loved well. So let's just talk about... Joe and Jane for a minute, whoever they are. All right? They both come from different family systems, and they stand at an altar, and they say, I do, and they launch off into a marital journey together. And Joe comes from a family that's pretty simple. Uh, There's not much to do about birthdays and anniversaries and other kinds of celebrations. Occasionally, you know, there's this little gesture and that little gesture, but it's not a big deal. Jane, on the other hand, comes from a family where it's a very big deal. These are very significant occasions that need to be marked in certain kinds of ways. And so these guys get married. You see where it's headed? So the first couple of years, as they live close to their family systems, Joe is helped to remember these special occasions. But Joe gets a promotion with his job, and his job brings about a geographic move. Now they live three states away from their family systems and their support systems. And it's been three or four years. And Joe is just really caught up in trying to make it in the workplace. Doesn't want to be a failure. And lo and behold, his anniversary comes up, and he doesn't remember. I know this is fictional. It doesn't happen, really, but... He doesn't remember his anniversary. So he comes home from work. His wife comes home from work. They sit down at the table. They began to have a little meal together. A few minutes go by, and finally Jane cannot contain herself any longer. How could you forget our anniversary? Do you not love me? And you know how that goes in that moment, guys? I mean, simultaneously in a split second, you can feel like the stupidest man on the planet. You can feel this incredible sense of remorse and grief 
And how in the world could I have forgotten this? I would never want to hurt her. I can't believe I just did this disappointment. But as she continues to express her disappointment, simultaneously all this is going on and and suddenly you become defensive. And wait a minute, I'm not that big of a loser. And you begin to make a case in your own mind, but I remember this and I remember that and I've done this and I've done that. And you begin to prepare your legal case because after all the prosecution is at work. (laughs) And the next thing you know, dinner has blown up. Okay? Fast forward. Another couple of years, another four or five. And Joe, bless his heart, he's remembered this, but he forgot that. And then he forgot that, but he remembered this. And, you know, they get to their 10th year, and he's got this history of not batting 1,000, maybe not even batting 700 or 500. He's had a lot of strikeouts. And they get to that 10th anniversary, and he just hates anniversaries, birthdays, other special occasions. They're only opportunities for him to fail. And she just hates anniversaries and birthdays and other opportunities for recognition because it's just an opportunity for her to be disappointed. And so when these things begin to come around, she expresses her disappointment and he feels disrespected. And so he begins to respond to what he perceives as disrespect. And he's less loving, less engaged, less available. She responds to that less amount of love with more disrespect. He responds to the greater amount of disrespect with less love. And as uh, one psychologist has put it, they enter into this crazy cycle. And they can't break it. They can't get out of it. Finally, they go to some counseling. And they're able to articulate and to affirm to one another, yes, we do love each other. Yes, we do respect each other as very capable, talented, able people. But these messages are suppressed with disappointment and lack of loving expression. You ever been there? Maybe you know somebody there. And Paul's point in all of this is, is women, when you respect well your husband, defer, submit, he's able to love you well. Guys, when you love her well, she is better able to send honor and respect your way. And out of that, where a couple is loving and respecting one another well, God is glorified. And people look at that marriage and they go, what's the secret there? They have something going on that's not uh, happening in my marriage. And they're able to point to the grace of God, the work of God, the power of God in their lives and in their relationship that draws another heart to God. Paul says this is what it's all about. Show what an awesome God he is by the way that you conduct yourself in this relationship. And you go, you know what? I would respect him, but he's not always respectable. Well, you know that God commands us 
that we love people whether or not they are lovable. These are choices. We choose to respect. It's not a hypocritical thing. We're not uh, putting out their flattery and false admiration and empty kinds of words. But we can conduct ourselves in gracious, non-critical, non-harsh, non-complaining, non-nagging kinds of ways. And thus show respect. Whether or not he's totally being respectable. And similarly... Whether somebody's cold and prickly, uh, you want to uh, recoil and withdraw. He gives us grace to love, to draw near, to touch, to embrace, to show that we care. Paul says, make it that way. Because this is the way that we unfold the mysteries of God to other people. Now, As we continue to talk about this, we move from marriage to talking about parenting. Look with me in chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. Real quickly, it's the same kind of deal. You get to glorify God. You get to point a watching world to God by the way you conduct yourself within your family system, the way parents treat their children, the way children respond to their parents. And he begins with the kids, and he says, Children, obey. Follow advice, follow instructions, submit to their leadership in your lives. He says, honor them, speak well of them. Um, They may strike you in a given moment as the most uninformed people on the planet. But keep that to yourself. (laughs) And honor. Parents, fathers, encourage Don't exasperate. Don't provoke. And train. Walk with your kids in such a way that they can observe you. They can learn from you. And they can gain some skills and some wherewithal to face the challenges of life. Now, we all have our stories. We all come from family systems where this has worked well or poorly to whatever degree, right? Friends, one of the reasons why some of our marriages have as much challenge as they do is because of what happened in the family of origin and what happened in the parenting that a given couple received or didn't receive. We've never had, I don't think, such an epidemic in our history of fatherlessness as we do right now. Whether the father is out of the home because of separation or divorce or whether he's in the home and he's just absent emotionally and always at work or somewhere else, you know, even though his body's in the house. The fact of the matter is a lot of guys are growing up today and they don't know how to love somebody. 
They don't know how to be loved by somebody. They don't know how to treat other people because they haven't been gleaning these kinds of things from men, from dads. And then when uh, you become a dad and you begin to get a little uh, uh, pushback from your kids, we didn't get to watch how you handle pushback. And so we uh, lower ourselves to provocation and to battle of words and to power struggles and things like that. In my own family of origin, my uh, parents divorced when I was very young. My father was an absent father in the fullest sense of the word. And my single mom was doing the best that she could to raise me and my brother and to compensate for huge insecurities and fears and how are we going to survive and face another day? Uh, she would put on this persona of toughness, and uh, sometimes that came off as harshness and controlling and manipulative. And the average person, unless you just have a temperament that's very accommodating, uh, the average person is going to push back on that. And so my brother and I both pushed back on that big time. And we resisted being controlled and being manipulated. And so there was constant fighting and constant fussing, arguments and yelling, all kinds of ugly stuff in our very dysfunctional family. When I came to Christ as a sophomore in high school, within about a year or a year and a half, God uh, introduced me to Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. And through a study that I did with a bunch of other high school students, I began to understand the principles behind submission. What God is up to when I submit. What God is up to in my parents' lives when I submit. And I by no means felt like my mother was uh, well-informed or wise or knew what she was doing. I by no means had confidence in her parenting. We were very adversarial. But I, I began to believe the Word of God. And I began to be convicted that as long as I was under her roof, I needed to honor and obey and submit and show her the power of Christ in my life by my being that kind of son. It totally transformed the way I responded to my mother and then to my stepfather, whom she had married. So I get into college, and my, my mother and my stepfather are not believers. They, they don't share my faith in Christ. And they are watching me like a hawk since I have come to Christ. And there is this noticeable difference in how I respond to them, how I submit to them, how I honor them. I'm away at college now. I get to do whatever I want to do. I don't have a curfew. I come in whenever I want to come. I come and go as I want but every time I come home for a visit, every time I come home for a weekend, I'm totally under their rules. I'm submitting to everything they're asking. I'm trying to honor them in every way God allows me and shows me how to honor them. Friends, that transformation in my life led them to Christ. And my parents who are getting on up there now and have ill health will someday be in heaven because of what was going on in our family system with honor and obeying. Well, 
we wrap it up as we get into chapter 5 and we're talking about the workplace. Now, the way Paul's going to address this is slaves to masters. I know sometimes in your workplace, <laughs> you go, hey, I, I don't even have to stretch my imagination about this. Uh, but as I understand the text, its application plays out for us today in our workplaces. So listen to the Word of God beginning in verse 5. Slaves, employees, if you will, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, employers, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Now, Notice uh, what he says to employees. Obey. Submit. We're still in this big context of how believers learn to live submitting kinds of lives. And we're never uh, immediately and actually submitting to the person that's present. We're always ultimately submitting unto the Lord. Always ultimately seeing that God's up to something in this relationship. And as I submit, something of him comes through me to others. So obey and submit, follow instructions, carry out your orders, and do that not just in a people-pleasing way, not just in a way that can be observed, okay, was able to check that off, I met that standard, met that quota or whatever, but do it as unto the Lord. How much heart would you put into it? How much of yourself would you give to it if it was a way to worship God, if it was a way to honor God by the way that you did that work? Render service, not just eye-pleasing, but wholeheartedly. And in all of that, trust God. Have a sense of confidence. He's up to something. Something to His glory, something that expands His kingdom, something that blesses other people will come out of my service being rendered in that kind of way. And then employers, he says, do the same thing. What thing? Trust God. Now, you guys that are employers, you've got certain bottom lines you've got to meet. You've got to have production out of your employees in a certain kind of way. That's pressure, right? And if they're not producing the way that you need them to produce, there's a lot of suffering that happens across the corporation or shareholders or whoever else there's accountability to. And so it kind of lends itself to a supervising, managing, CEO, whatever you might be, person, to trying to intimidate trying to threaten, throw your weight around. You're going to get that production out of them if you have to scare it out of them. And Paul says, don't do it that way. Trust that God will be at work and bring leadership to the workplace. Not manipulations, not intimidations, not strong-arming, but leadership that causes people to want to follow which means that you've got to be invested in them. You've got to be caring about them and not just bottom lines. 
Now, we have been blessed to have several of you through the years do these kinds of things well. And I've asked Randy Hudson to come and talk with us for just a minute. Uh, Randy, as some of you know, is one of the elders here in our church. He has been an officer in some of the uh, larger corporations in the Redmond area. And uh, more recently, he's in Seattle now, and he leads uh, one of the leading nonprofits in the Seattle area. Um, So, Randy, we've talked about these kinds of things before. I just continue to marvel as I talk to our friends in the room and, and around town about what goes on in some of our companies, leading companies in the world, and some of the leadership mess that goes on in these places. And uh, it causes you to scratch your head and go, how do they have the productivity they have when they are such poor leaders in so many cases? You've been in some of those scenarios. How does this text apply to what's been your experience with not-so-excellent leadership? Did I say that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, first, uh, let me say that uh, over my 30-some-odd-year career, I've probably had <clears throat> 30 bosses, and most of them have been good. So, uh, you know, praise God for, for that. But I've had a couple that were, um, in my opinion, pretty bad. I had one, a few jobs, a few years ago, who was brilliant. He was a bully, and he was abusive, I thought. And um, three things sort of come to mind out of these verses for me about that. The first is that uh, I just had to rely on Christ's strength to make it day to day. And this is over a five-year period, so it wasn't like a few months. It was, it was a long time. And it felt like water torture, you know, every drip, day. Drip, drip, drip. Yeah. Um, and I just found myself um, either literally or virtually on my knees a lot, um, just asking for God's strength. And, and getting it. And, it, you know, it's hard to describe the strength that's outside yourself, beyond yourself, but it, it was there, and I was grateful for that. Uh, the second thing is that um, I, I, almost always there's a lesson in these matters, in these situations. And so um, for me, it was a lesson about commitment, uh, and, it, and it was a very clear lesson that uh, – he wanted me to learn to be better at being committed to a difficult, challenging situation as opposed to walking away from it, which was sort of my M.O. Mm-hmm. up until that time. So um, I knew he was working with me about that, and I was determined with his strength to keep on and uh, uh, continue to respect my boss, even though I didn't particularly care for him. Um, third thing is that I learned a lot about how to view myself, understand myself, about who I was in Christ, as opposed to, um, you know, trying to find my value, my worth, and who others thought I was. You know, I'd spent a good share of my time during those years completely dismissing this boss's dim view of me. And at one point I realized, wow, maybe I should also be dismissing or discounting other people's uh, favorable view of me. Which, honestly, for the most part, was my mother and my dog. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much. Okay. <laughs> but you take what you can. So uh, I just began to realize that, um, you know, who I was in Christ was important, where, you know, your heart and your intentions matter a lot more than your performance. Hmm. Well, now you're on the other end. And you're a CEO. You've got a number of people that respond to you. Um, so in light of the text we've been talking about today, 
How does, how's that impacting you in, in the time that you're you know, wearing this other hat? You know, if you, if you think about what we know about Christ, his nature, his character, um, you know, the commands that he gives us in the Bible, the parables that he tells, and then imagine him as a CEO, mm. I, I think he would set clear goals. They would be at a high standard. He'd hold us accountable. Um, he would give us room or freedom to um, execute on that and either do it successfully or or fail, flounder. Uh, and if we did flounder, he'd be understanding, compassionate. But remember that he's holding us accountable, so he'd he'd pick us up, you know, turn it into a, a learning experience, and, and get us back on the right track to to have another go at it. Um, and he'd be working alongside us, you know, instead of sort of decreeing this from on high. And, and uh, um, he'd be with us on a daily basis, if, you know, if we're seeking him and finding him. Uh, and so I, I try to do that in the workplace. And I try to do it consistently so that it's not, you know, he was never inconsistent. He, he was sometimes unpredictable, but it was, it was unpredictable in a good way because he was taking us in a new direction. And I think you expect that from a senior manager to, you know, to, to go in a different direction, new direction. Um, but I think people really need you to be consistently fair, you know, across the spectrum of the employees and, and consistent from a day-to-day standpoint so that you're not, they don't know what to expect when they come in for work. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of good lessons um, out of that, that that apply to um, good management. And then, of course, I try to let people that know that I'm a Christian. I take my faith seriously. Um, and uh, you know, and one of the ways of modeling that is is to have a work-life balance. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if I'm not modeling that, then it's, it's probably not going to happen well down throughout the ranks. And, and you know, I think it's important that they know that the work is a, the work is important, but it's not the only thing. Yeah. Well, I've had the privilege. Some of you have known Randy for a while. Uh, I've had the privilege of knowing Randy around twenty plus years and I've been able to watch these things unfold in the various places that you've worked through the years and uh, I don't know that I've seen anybody do it consistently as well as Randy so thanks for sharing some of your story and for being open with us in ways that we can learn appreciate you very much God bless And he's available anytime you want to consult uh, (laughs) on how to navigate those situations. Just thought I'd volunteer you there. (laughs) So here we are. What are you going to do with what we've been talking about? Friends, I I have to end with where we began, and that is this. The kind of life we're talking about is not something that we can flex our muscles and grit our teeth and muster up. This is a divine encounter where God comes upon us and saves us, forgives us, transforms us, makes us new people. And out of that, we have these kinds of experiences in our workplace, in our parenting and family life, in our marriage, and in all of our other relationships that we were talking about last week. Have you settled that issue for your own self, for your own heart? I'm not talking about, you know, do you historically believe Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was a good man, Jesus might have been a prophet, Jesus may have been even the Son of God. I'm not talking about that historically. I'm talking about that personally. 
Have you settled that in your own heart so that you would say, I will give my ultimate allegiance to Jesus, who I believe is alive today and Lord and Master of the universe. Now, if you feel impressed, God's stirring that about in you right now, then I would encourage you to take a step about that by using the little connection card that was referenced earlier today. On the back side of that card is a little place that you can check a mark and and just say, I want to have that kind of relationship with Christ. And that will come directly to my attention. And I'm going to pray for you about that. And I'm also offering myself to you about that. If you want to talk about it, if you want to meet about that, I'm here for you. In the second place, will you imitate Christ? In all the ways that we've been talking about these two weeks, will you practice by His power forgiveness, love, thanksgiving, discernment, mutual submission? Even as I say those words, there are relationships and there are scenarios that are popping up in your mind. That is God's Spirit interacting with you right now. Will you yield this to me? Will you let me bring power to that? You need to forgive somebody. Let him bring some power to you about that. You need to love a hard-to-love person. Let him bring power to you about that. You need to discern and figure out his will and his way. Let him bring power and revelation to you about that. And then, will you relate? Will you love your wife better than ever? Will you respect your husband more consistently than ever? Will you parent your children in non-provoking, training, edifying, building, growing kinds of ways? Will you respond to your parents with love and respect, with honor and obedience? Will you bring Christ into the workplace with you so that you're treating your peers, your supervisors, those you supervise, under His care and activity. Let me pray for you about these things. So, Father, I pray for every friend in the room, some just struggling so much with these relationships, some at a great point of pain, some with perplexing questions about what to do next. I just pray, God, that as only You can, You'd bring the grace, the power, the wisdom, the courage, the direction that we need, that we are dependent upon you for. And for my friend that is contemplating giving his or her life to you in a saving relationship, I pray. Would you just bring that to fruition in their heart right now? As they say, Lord, save me, would you save them? As they say, Lord, please forgive me, would you forgive them? Would you make them a son or a daughter by your adoption? We pray that in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.